This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it. That's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Welcome, everybody, in a sea of COVID-19 info. This one comes as a little bit of a bombshell. This is via The Hill. Crowded indoor spaces, including private households, are vulnerable to a particularly high level of COVID-19 transmission. This is according to a new study published just this week in the Journal of the American Medical Association. A comprehensive analysis of 54 individual studies featuring a total of 77,000 plus participants observed COVID-19 transmission from one person to another in a shared household was 16.6% higher than comparable coronaviruses. And it confirmed that household transmission rates could stay high even in areas where broader community transmission rates were low. Information that might have been helpful back in March. It's just stunning to me. So what you're saying is the lockdowns were ridiculous. Is that what you're saying? Because what you did during all these lockdowns and the new lockdowns that are in place now in places like California and soon to come even more in places like New York, all you're going to be doing is locking people down in their homes where they have a higher incidence of transmission of COVID-19. I mean, talk about the ball moving all the time, the goalposts moving all the time. What in the world are we to make of this? And in the meantime, you're driving some 110,000 restaurateurs out of business for good, even though the risk of transmitting the COVID-19 virus, if you're sitting in an outdoor dining area, is pretty much no big deal. But those people have lost their livelihoods for good, so we could all stay home and get coronavirus. Fantastic work, guys. Great work. Trust the government, right? Trust science. It's unbelievable. Speaking of restaurants, and I'm going to segue into this one. You might have seen this video going around. It was very much viral, a video of a man by the name of Anton Van Happen. He owns a restaurant called Nick the Greek in Ventura, California, and he went head to head with a couple of health inspectors, and this video was taken and put on the internet over the issue of closing his restaurant over lockdown rules. According to Newsweek, Van Happen's restaurant was ordered to close on Friday as he continued to serve diners outside despite California's regional ban on outdoor dining. Now he's been issued a citation for continuing to operate despite the closure notice. This was a little bit of the exchange. Cut three. Yeah. Tell them that 
Are you going to pay my rent? He put his tables outside to protest, but he didn't serve anybody outside. All he did was take out. And here these people are showing up in his business, harassing him. Enough is enough is enough is enough already. All we're seeing as time goes along is more evidence for why we've been duped. Absolutely duped when it comes to the response to this coronavirus. 15 days to slow the spread. Ha ha. Funny joke. Julie Kelly over at American Greatness actually has a really good piece called No Science Justifies Bans on Indoor or Outdoor Dining. And she goes through and debunks some of these studies that have taken place, citing the fact that the National Restaurant Association detailed just recently the stark condition of the industry. More than 110,000 restaurants, as I've mentioned, have permanently closed their doors this year. 10,000 establishments have shut down in just the past three months. November's unemployment rate for the leisure and hospitality sector is 15%, more than double the national jobless rate. What a tragedy. Restaurants and bars account for one-fifth of the total job losses in the U.S. since February 2020. And she goes into some of these studies. Only a handful of papers attempt to tie public dining to the spread of the novel coronavirus. She mentions one study that's been cited, but points out that it didn't draw from hard data directly linked to confirmed outbreaks at drinking or dining venues. This was something that was cited by CNN, saying adults with COVID-19 are about twice as likely to say they've dined at a restaurant. But the finding relied on recall surveys completed by infected respondents two to three weeks after a positive test result. How is this scientific? It's not scientific. And something else, she says, the current body of evidence indicates bars and restaurants are among the least likely culprits in the spread of COVID-19. A study that used contact tracing in Switzerland after that country's lockdown was lifted found less than 2% of infections could be attributed to bars and restaurants. You know, where do you go back for your livelihood after the government drives you into the ground? And here we have NYC possibly facing full shutdown, according to the tyrant Bill de Blasio. Uh, This was reported. They could be going back to a full shutdown. I guess we're all just supposed to go along with this. You know, at what point do the American people remember that we're free? At what point do the American people say, you represent us and we didn't put you into power in order to lock us all down? Whatever happened to even understanding what quarantine is all about? Quarantine is about putting sick people into isolation so they don't spread the virus. That's one thing. But where is the legal justification for locking down healthy people for months on end and driving people's businesses into the ground? With emergency health orders that were put into place in March, we're going on almost a year now of this nonsense. At what point do the legislatures have to get involved and pass actual laws? I don't blame this guy for going nuts. I'm going nuts with him because I don't like being duped. Then you have Bill Gates. Let's talk a little bit about Bill Gates. Bill Gates, as the Washington Times calls him, the guy who turned in his Microsoft credentials for a cereal box medical degree that allows him to tell you and me to stay home due to a virus, is now telling us that we will have to stay home until when? Hmm, let's talk about this a little bit. Jake Tapper recently interviewed Bill Gates on this subject. Let's first start with this discussion about states and the tough measures they need to take in order to abate COVID-19. Cut one. There are a lot of governors uh, who oppose bringing back these lockdown orders and forcing businesses to close. What do you think? Do you think more states need to consider taking that kind of drastic action and the kind of drastic action we saw when the pandemic first began? Or can there be a more 
nuanced approach? Well, certainly mask wearing uh, has essentially no downside. They're not expensive. Bars and restaurants in most of the country will be closed as we go into this wave. And I think, sadly, that's appropriate. Depending on how severe it is, the decision about schools is much more complicated because they're, you know, the benefits are pretty high. The amount of transmission is not the same as in restaurants and bars. So, uh, you know, trade-offs will have to be made. But this, the next four to six months uh, really call on us uh, to, to do our best because we can see that this will end and you don't want you know, somebody you love to be the last to die of coronavirus. What about how long it will last? Cut to. When do you think life will fully return to what we thought of as normal back in January? No masks, no social distancing, uh, no other protective measures necessary. Certainly by the summer, we'll be way closer to normal than we are now. But even through early 2022, unless we help other countries get rid of this disease, and we get high vaccination rates in our country, the risk of reintroduction will be there. And of course, the global economy will be uh, slowed down, which hurts America economically in a pretty dramatic way. So we'll have, starting in the summer, about nine months where a few things like big public gatherings uh, will still be restricted. But you know, we can see now that somewhere between 12 to 18 months, and we have a chance if we manage it well uh, to get back to normal. Okay. You're not in charge of us, Bill Gates, but there's more to the story. We're going to pause for a break. We'll be back on Janet Meffer today. Hi, this is Janet Mefford here today with Matt Bellis with Liberty HealthShare, a national nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry. Matt, many people today are confused about their options for covering their healthcare expenses. How is Liberty HealthShare different from insurance? Well, we don't want to be insurance at all. We are called a healthcare sharing ministry. Just meaning that as men and women, we're voluntarily sharing medical bills with one another. But that means that insurance does basically two things that we don't do. One, we don't share risk. We don't try to take risk and spread it out amongst as many people as possible. We are each individually responsible for our own risk. The second thing is that we don't pool our funds. We don't put our money into a big, giant, bureaucratic black hole, and hopefully someday we'll be able to get some money out of that. So those are the two main differences. We don't spread risk, and we don't pool our funds. We're all each individually responsible for our own health care and health care bills, and we share our money whenever we need each other as it pertains to our health care bills. So that's why we're not insurance, and we couldn't be more proud not to be insurance. Why would you say that health care sharing is a great option? Well, it really does set people free within the confines of a community that helps you in times of need. We're here to support each other in a community and help you during those times that are unexpected and unaffordable. But you as the individual have the 
uh, ability, responsibility, and the freedom to make decisions within your health care that pertains to you and your family. Thanks, Matt. More information about Liberty HealthShare is available at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT, or their phone number is 855-585-4237. You're listening to Janet Mefford today, and now here's Janet. So the goalposts have moved again. Bill Gates says, yeah, maybe early 2022, you can get back to normal with this COVID-19 nonsense. 12 to 18 months, we'll know. Why are you in charge? You can't even deal with viruses in your own software. How in the world is it that we as Americans are handing off all of these big decisions to technocrats like Bill Gates? And believe me, the guy is a big-time global elite. You don't need me to remind you about that. In fact, I went over and was reading about this on The Sociable, which is a technology news blog. And they went back and were talking not only about this Event 201 that happened just in 2018, I guess it was, but but they point out something really important because Klaus Schwab from the World Economic Forum, the guy who talked about the Great Reset, started talking about this in 2014. So in May 2018, the World Economic Forum partnered with Johns Hopkins to simulate a fictitious pandemic. It was called Clade X to see how prepared the world would be if ever faced with a pandemic. And then about a year later, they had this event 201. That's what it was. Event 201 in October 2019. And guess who they teamed up with? the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. They staged another pandemic exercise. And both of these simulations concluded the world wasn't prepared for a global pandemic. And a few short months following the conclusion of Event 201, which specifically simulated a coronavirus outbreak, the World Health Organization officially declared that the coronavirus had reached pandemic status. Isn't that interesting? Since then, just about every scenario covered in the Clade X and Event 201 simulations has come into play, including governments implementing lockdowns worldwide, the collapse of many industries, growing mistrust between governments and citizens, a greater adoption of biometric surveillance technologies, social media censorship in the name of combating misinformation, the desire to flood communication channels with authoritative sources, a global lack of personal personal protective equipment, the breakdown of international supply chains, mass unemployment, rioting in the streets, and a whole lot more. Isn't this interesting? Bill Gates is a big part of this because he is a big, big player in the whole vaccine business around the world. And in fact, the New York Times recently reported on Bill Gates and his vaccine aims and all the money he's poured into getting vaccinations and how he gets on the phone with Dr. Fauci and they talk about what to do. I understand people want to talk about the power of the private sector in improving people's lives, but I just don't think this is that innocent. I'm sorry. I don't think it's that innocent. And I think if you want to take a vaccine, you certainly are free to do that. And I think we definitely want COVID-19 to go away. We would love that. I don't know if it could ever be completely eradicated, though. We haven't been able to do it with the flu. We haven't been able to do it with H1N1. So what gives us any sort of confidence we'll get rid of COVID-19 forever? All kinds of questions come to mind. And in the midst of this, I have to segue into something that has happened in the last few weeks that really 
bugs me. I just have to tell you straight out, it bugs me. There's a story at Breitbart. The U.S. Catholic bishops say that Catholics have a moral responsibility to be vaccinated against the coronavirus. They said, according to Fort Wayne Bishop Kevin Rhodes, the chairman of the U.S. Bishops Committee on Doctrine, and Kansas City Archbishop Joseph Nauman, the chairman of the Committee on Pro-Life Activities, put out this joint statement saying receiving one of the COVID-19 vaccines ought to be understood as an act of charity toward the other members of our community. Okay, we don't start with the collective, folks. We start with the individual. Maybe somebody says, I have a 99.4% chance of recovering even if I do catch this thing. I'm going to take my chances. I don't want your vaccine. Why don't you have the, the right to say that? They say in this way, being vaccinated safely against COVID-19 should be considered an act of love of our neighbor and part of our moral responsibility for the, wait for it, common good. Now, I am not an anti-vaxxer. I'm not. There have been certain vaccines I have refused for my children for various reasons. But by and large, my kids have all gotten their vaccinations. I've gotten my vaccination. I I don't care. I mean, I'm not an anti-vaxxer, but I'm also somebody who is very much of the opinion that you ought to do due diligence when making a decision. If you have a brand new vaccine, I go back to when my child was a baby, my oldest daughter was a baby, and there was a brand new vaccine that had come out and I refused it and the doctor went nuts. And I said, no, I'm I'm not negating the fact that maybe she will get this vaccine, but it's too new. And I don't want my newborn baby being the guinea pig in all of this. So I'm going to wait. And I took all kinds of abuse from this doctor and the nurses treating me like an anti-vaxxer, even though they had just given her about 10 injections right before I said, no, not that one. Turns out two weeks later, that new vaccine was pulled off the market because it was damaging the systems of newborn babies. Ha! I enjoyed that one. So you never know. So you have, on the one hand, the U.S. Catholic bishops saying, for the common good, you have to get the vaccine. But let's go over to look at the ERLC. Oh, they never disappoint. The Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission's research fellows, these ethicists, penned a piece back at the public discourse on December 8th, why we plan to get vaccinated, a Christian moral perspective. First of all, have you ever noticed with these guys, nothing is just, I have an opinion. It's always, they are here to render to you the Christian moral perspective. I call them a bunch of plank-eyed busybodies because I'm tired of this. I am just weary of all of these people coming along and telling Christians what they have to do as if I can't open my Bible and read it for myself. What happened to the priesthood of all believers? Why do I need somebody 24-7 coming up into my grill and telling me what I have to do about everything under the sun all day long? I don't care what you think. I know you're filling your website with articles because you have to keep the the whole system running smoothly and you have to get people to come to your website and donate and do all the rest and pay attention to you. That's fine. But they say, in part, it's not possible to properly love a person and act so as to unnecessarily jeopardize their health. If by the minimal burden of wearing a mask, we can potentially protect others from grave illness, then it seems we have a moral obligation to wear a mask. The same can be said for COVID-19 vaccinations. If by being vaccinated, we can protect others from illness, then we have a corresponding obligation given our Lord's command to love neighbors to be vaccinated. Except for the fact that this is not polio, I recognize that people have died of COVID-19, but it has a very high recovery rate. Did we say this same thing about flu? If you love your neighbor. Come on, if you love your neighbor, you better get that flu shot. No, this is not why we get vaccinations. We get vaccinations primarily so we won't get sick. 
And yes, maybe there's a, a side benefit of you're not spreading it to anybody else. But my first consideration when I get a flu vaccine, which I do very infrequently, but it's I don't want to get the flu. That's what it's about. I don't have to think about the common good every time I turn around, do I? Why is it the business of these elites to constantly tell us what we need to do? Are we not free people who can make up our own minds? I have no problem with people getting the COVID-19 vaccine. There are a lot of good reasons for getting it. If you trust that it's a safe vaccine, go for it. You're a free human being living in the United States of America, and at least now we still have some freedom. Go ahead and take it. If you have an underlying health condition that makes you more vulnerable, take it. If you're an elderly person or you're living in a nursing home, take it. If you're a medical professional working in a hospital and you feel safer getting it, take it. There are good reasons to take it, but I don't understand these people who constantly have to come alongside Christians and say, it's a biblical responsibility for you to take this vaccine. Prove it. There's not one Bible verse in this entire thing, by the way. Not that I can see. Not one Bible verse. It's not based in the Bible. And what do they say here? Predictably, being vaccinated demonstrates that we care about the common good. At the same time, we also acknowledge the sincerity of those whose consciences disagree in good faith. Well, which is it? Which is it? Because they go on to say these ERLC research fellows from the Southern Baptist Convention, they go on to say Christian liberty requires that each person be free to choose whether or not to receive these new vaccines. But then they're telling you if you love your neighbor, neighbor you're going to get the vaccine. <laughs> what? The libertarian-minded citizen who reflexively rejects any claim of authority has not adequately met the necessary threshold to refuse vaccination. Those appealing to Christian liberty or conscience have the burden of demonstrating what goods are procured, secured, or respected that surpass the goods associated with vaccination. We're not saying such arguments are impossible to make or possibly worthy to act upon. However, we do believe the goods associated with vaccination outweigh the risks or goods born of refusing vaccination. So in a way, they're telling you, go ahead and do what your conscience demands. But if you're really, really a moral Christian, you'll, of course, get vaccinated. Well, what about some of the risks of the vaccines? Does that ever come into play? Is that something that Christians can talk about? Because Pfizer's chairman said just recently, it's not clear whether people who are vaccinated can still spread COVID-19. I'm looking at the story right here at Business Insider. The chairman of Pfizer said this just recently. Is this not something that we should be pointing to as thinking adults that we could take this into consideration? Lester Holt, the anchor, asked the head of Pfizer, even though I've had the protection, am I still able to transmit it to other people? And this Head of Pfizer, the chairman, said, I think this is something that needs to be examined. We are not certain about that right now with what we know. New vaccine. Doesn't mean it's bad. Doesn't mean it's the mark of the beast. I'm not one of those people who believes it's the mark of the beast. But I'm just saying, look at the bigger picture here. The bigger picture here is you have a whole lot of people who have vested interest in controlling your life. And if that's not something that Christians should be concerned about, I don't know what is. There is a much bigger picture here. There's the technocracy picture, the great reset picture. You have Gates and a whole lot of money invested in getting vaccinations to the third world and other poor countries, developing countries, and they want to lock down the United States in order to stem the flow of COVID-19. This is why you have these people who are involved in making gigantic decisions who have no business making gigantic decisions for your life. You didn't elect Bill Gates and you didn't elect Fauci. 
Why are we why are we beholden to these people? Because in some measure we have forgotten how to be free. We have forgotten how to look at our Bibles as well and determine what is ethical and moral to do. And we're constantly looking to these gurus to tell us how to think and where to think and why to think a certain way. We don't need them. Think for yourself. And that requires reading and studying and understanding that you're capable of thinking if you'll put your mind to it. We'll be right back. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. What is the role of hope in the Christian life? Well, we know the Word of God addresses that in a lot of different passages, but one of my favorites comes from Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, and it says this, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now the difficulty for many of us though is finding God's presence while we are in the midst of pain and persevering while we're suffering. But yes, there is hope if you are walking through a difficult season of life. And we're going to talk about it today with Ron Hutchcraft who is founder and president of Ron Hutchcraft Ministries and on Eagle's Wings Native American Youth Outreach. He's also host of the Radio Video feature a word with you and author of the book we'll be discussing called Hope When Your Heart Is Breaking. And Ron, welcome. It's just great to have you here. Well, thank you, Janet. It's good to be back with you. And uh, thank you for uh, thank you for this chance to be together. You bet. It's so nice to have you back as well. You know, you share your own pain and hope right at the beginning of your book. You talked about the tragic loss of your wife, Karen. How has losing her and walking through your own grief brought you to this discussion about hope? Oh, boy. Well, um, you know, it's interesting. I heard you talking about hope there at the beginning, and uh, I don't think it's ever been more important to people than, than now. I never could have dreamed when I started to write the book that we would have so much loss in this nation in the past year. Yeah. Virtually everybody's lost something a value to them, which means there's so much grieving going on, because you grieve after any kind of a loss, and therefore, when grief walks in, a lot of times hope walks out. So um, I can tell you just a little of how this happened, and then to get to your question, um, I'll I'll take you back to a wonderful May night, weekend night, uh, where Karen and I are in the bleachers, in a full stadium where our grandson is graduating his valedictorian of his class. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was giving a wonderful speech to a full stadium, Christ-honoring speech, and it's a great moment. And uh, I had to leave. Some guys were driving me to another state to speak the next day, and we would have to drive through the night. So I said, um, I love you, honey. And she said, well, I love you. And then she got tears in her eyes, which we've had a lot of goodbyes, Janet. So, you know, I thought, well, that's different. I said, what's up, honey? 
And she said, I'm really going to miss you. Mm. And I said, oh, don't worry. It won't be long. I was so wrong. The next afternoon, my son was on the phone to tell me mom was gone (sighs) in our living room. And I was gone when it happened. Now, this is the lady I've loved since I was 19. This is the other half of me. This is the only person who I share my entire adult life history with. We know the same people, have experienced the same things, have had the same battles and prayers and victories. And um, her laugh, we've laughed, her laugh was picked up on seismographs. You wouldn't believe it, Janet. <laughs> she was just such a joyful person. Gone. And I, and I, I all, you know, my whole adult life had been Ron and Karen, Ron and Karen, Ron and Karen, boom. In an instant, it was just Ron. And I have to tell you that um, I, I had two emotions. I was, I was rejoicing for her because she was with the one she loved the most, which is my, our Savior Jesus. She was in heaven. Hallelujah. No more pain, no more tears, no more sorrow. I wasn't. Her children weren't. Her grandchildren weren't. And we were here without her. I felt like a lost little boy, Janet. Mm-hmm. I, I, I mean, you know, I, I'm a guy like in many in ministry, give guidance to a lot of people. I've walked this trail with a lot of people. But all of a sudden, I was the lost little boy who didn't know what, where to go. And I think the beginning of, well, I was never intending to write a book on this. I never would have dreamed I'd write a book on this. But um, I started to keep a grief journal not very long after that. And if you were to go to one of the early pages, you would see at the top of that page, in big, bold letters, these words. And God had to give me this thought because I, I couldn't even have thoughts, it seemed like. I said, I will not waste this grief. <laughs> Somehow I said, Lord, if it's going to hurt this bad, would you please use it to make me more useful to you and more helpful to other people and change me into a better man because of it. I had no idea what that would mean. All I can tell you is my journey since then has been the answer to that prayer. Goodness. Well, I'm terribly sorry for your loss. That's devastating. Maybe one of the biggest devastations anybody could ever experience is the loss of a longtime spouse. And I'm so, so sorry, Ron. But, you know, your experience obviously is not unique. There are many people listening whom I know will have the same experience and may not have had the reaction you had. Instead, maybe falling into despair that lasts. I mean, that does happen sometimes even with Christians. And part of this, I think, does go along with the subtitle of your book, which is about finding God's presence in your pain. It's a very biblical lament that we read about sometimes that says, Lord, where are you? Where are you? I'm I'm hurting and I'm 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 really in grief and despair and suffering and I can't feel you. I can't see you when I pray. It's as if my prayers are hitting brass clouds. What do you say to that Christian who is in such pain but can't find hope? You know, uh, I'm so glad you just said the things you said, because many people uh, right now are saying, wow, thank you for your honesty. When I started to keep this grief journal, I said, you know, I am going to be honest. Uh, this is raw run. This is, I'm not going to give the Christian talking points. I'm going to write my heart, and my heart was shattered. I wrote a blog a, a, a couple weeks later, my shattered heart, my certain hope, 
Well, that's the story right there. Yes. My shattered heart and my certain hope. And and I, I, I was uh, very honest about the fact that I was I was broken. I was clueless as to even what to do in the next ten minutes. And so, um, and, and I have found that people appreciate being open-hearted about it. Because if you're not honest about the hurt, no one's going to believe the hope. Right. And, uh, and so, you know, you talked about some of the feelings, the, the real p- feelings people have. And, you're, you know, you made a point. You may not know you made a point. But the fact is that when people start when we lose something and i mean there's other things that die people we love die but marriages can die and our health can die i mean we walk out of the doctor's office and we are grieving what we've lost because of the report we got um you know our dreams people's dreams die uh, many of us have pain of our past abused or deserted abandoned whatever that hasn't been really dealt with and we we grieve that constantly so all of those feelings you were describing to a higher or lesser degree, uh, there are many people who are listening that probably could, could go along with. I can just take you through my journey, which very simply um, was, um, first of all, was to, I, I realized that because I've, I've walked this trail with many, many people, many of our Native American friends with whom we have a ministry, you and I have talked about that before, yeah. and um, I found that the the tendency we have choices to make when we've got a major loss and that is where we either choose a road that will take us to healing and hope or a road that will take us to more hurt and more brokenness hmm. sadly more people probably drift into the things that will hurt us more if if grief and loss are like a hammer now you hold a hammer in your hand and you can it can either build something or it can destroy right same hammer it's not the hammer that decides. It's what you do with the hammer. And I got hit by a sledgehammer, Janet. And there's people listening right now who have been hit by one of the hammers of life. But let me tell you, it is not going to be the loss that's going to determine whether you are defined by that loss the rest of your life and increase the hurt or whether you have hope and healing. It's going to be the choices you make. One of the choices I made was to not stuff it. That's good. Hang on just a moment. Ron Hutchcraft, my guest. Hope When Your Heart is Breaking is the name of his book. We'll take a short break and come right back on Janet Meffer Today. If you could provide God's word to a Bibleist believer elsewhere in the world, would you? Through the ministry of Bible League International, you can send that Bible today. Hebrews 13.3 urges us to remember those in great need, noting that when the body of Christ anywhere is found lacking, we're encouraged to help provide it. These believers live where churches are small and remote, where authorities aren't welcoming of Christianity, and where Bibles are scarce. As Pastor Carlo in Peru says, they need the hope found only in God's Word. Everyone wants to read the Bible, but what happens, there are a few copies here in the area. Many of them will uh, be sharing the single Bible. For only $5, believers around the world will receive Bibles and be discipled in their new faith. $35 sends seven Bibles, $100 sends 20. And because of a matching gift right now, your gift will be doubled. Call 800 Yes Word, 800 Y E S W O R D. 
800-YES-WORD, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. The Ministry of Preborn is the largest provider of free heartbeats for moms in crisis in the USA. When a mother chooses life, preborn centers are there to help with the baby's needs, counseling, and so much more, free of charge. When I heard her heartbeat, I decided to keep her. And now my daughter's about to be three. I don't know where my life would be without her. The Ministry of Preborn is the largest nationwide provider of free ultrasounds for expectant moms in crisis. There's just something about seeing your own baby's heartbeat that moves a mom's heart toward life like nothing else. Will you please help support Preborn in the cause for life? One ultrasound is just $28, or five ultrasounds are $140. And now through a matching gift, your gift will be doubled, rescuing 10 babies' lives. To donate, just call 855-402-BABY. That's 855 855- Five four zero two twenty two twenty nine. All gifts are tax deductible. That's eight five five four zero two baby. Or there's a preborn banner to click at janetmefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today, and now here's your host, Janet Mefford. Well, we remember the words of Job. Though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. And we all have had circumstances in our lives, sometimes devastating ones that really bring us to a place where we can choose to go in the direction of healing or to go in the direction of more hurt. And this is such an important subject. Ron Hutchcraft is with us. Hope When Your Heart is Breaking is the name of his book. Ron, you were addressing before we went to the break this issue of choosing the road and your own experience and having lost your dear wife. How do you choose that healing road? Well, first of all, I, uh, I made the decision that uh, having walked this trail with other people, I've seen people devastated when they stuff their grief. And by the way, that might be what we do more often than not, is I've got to be strong, I'm a Christian, or I, I don't want people to see me like this, or it hurts too bad. For whatever reason, we stuff it, and we think somehow that's going to help us. When you stuff grief and you do not grieve your grief and feel your feelings and express them, it will morph into something worse. It will morph into guilt and it will morph into depression and anger and more brokenness, uh, perhaps self-destructiveness. It becomes something much uglier and much more painful even than the grief. Mm. And so I think my first, in fact, Shakespeare said three little words that actually had a lot of wisdom in them. Give sorrow words. Hmm. Give sorrow words. So I did. And the first place I did it was in this journal. I talked, I talked to the journal, you might say, <laughs> and, and poured out my heart there. I poured it out to God. Now, here's the thing about pouring it out to God. Some people would think, well, what does God know? Uh, you know, he's up there. Let me tell you what God knows. God came here, as the Bible says, and he became a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, who carried more loss and pain and hurt and brokenheartedness than any person who's ever walked this planet. He was not a God on a cloud up there looking down saying, must be tough, wonder how it feels. He has walked our trail. So when I'm inviting my Jesus in, here's what happened. I'm learning that a broken heart is an open heart. And I'm saying wide open, Janet. I mean, it's open in places you didn't even know you had places in your heart. You are defenseless. And at that point, if you will cry out to Jesus, not saying same old words, but 
the raw you, and you cry out to Jesus with all of that, whether it is anger or unbearable pain or regrets or whatever it is, you will pour out your heart to him. He will come into the deepest parts of you where he's never probably been allowed to go before, maybe not because you kept him out. You didn't even know it was there. And he will bring in his comfort and his peace and his sense of okayness that is can't be described in any other way other than supernatural. Now, does it take the grief away? Nope. In fact, uh, when Paul wrote to the Thessalonian church about this, they'd had a lot of people die. And he said, we do not grieve. Now, if there was a period there, I'd close my Bible, put it away, and say, that's a lie. Hmm. Yes, we do. But he said, we do not grieve as others who have no hope. Because of Jesus, there was something on the other side of the grief scale. If If you face life's major loss, any major loss, without Jesus, it's just the grief. And there's no hope on the other side. Now, that hope did not cancel the grief, but it did envelop it. It did surround it and way more. And the Bible says this hope that we have is not wishful thinking or good positive vibes (laughs) or a greeting card word. Hope is a living hope, it says, because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That hope has a name, and his name is Jesus, and he has crushed death, the biggest monster we have to face, the greatest loss that there is. So what happened in my my process of trying to find my way through this is a reminder, I I would liken it to, to people who live in a part of the country where there's endless winter, (laughs) <laughs> I have friends who do, and they get, they'll get a hundred and some inches of snow every winter. It'll be brutally cold. And if that's all you knew, you'd go, I can't stand this winter anymore. Right. I, 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 I hate this. But you can, because you know there's a spring coming. That's right. And there's spring on the way. And as I stood at Karen's grave, unthinkable to me only days before, as I stood at her graveside, and threw the last handful of dirt in there. I said, see you soon, baby. Yeah, right. And I know I will. Yep. Because we're both anchored to the living hope, Jesus. And so, oh, there's winter. And the winter is cold and dark. No doubt about it. But there is a spring coming. I can make it through winter. And the winter lasts a short time and the spring lasts forever. <laughs> it's great. It's so great. So many thoughts come to mind when you were saying all of that, Ron. One was Jesus' promise, I am the resurrection and the life, and he who believes in me will never die. And I have, I'm one of these people who likes to collect a lot of Christian quotes, and I have some that I tape up on my computer. And when you were talking, I was thinking of one in particular. It's anonymous. I don't know who exactly said it first, but they said, no two Christians will ever meet for the last time. 
And I have always loved that because that that's hope, hope in Christ. And it's all because of the work of Christ. And we have those promises in his word. To me, that's also such a significant thing, irrespective of my feelings or my grief or my hopelessness or despair or my emotions of the moment. We have a sure anchor in Jesus Christ and in the promises of his word. That also, I know, rings true for you and is a hope for people who are grieving right now with you. You know, what you said, this occurred to me the other day, one of the most tragic things we've been watching on the news these past few months has been the fact that people with COVID cannot have their family there in their last moments. Yes. And they've talked a lot about people dying alone. And what occurred to me is this. No child of God has ever died alone. That's right. Your family might not be able to be with you. You, you, you might be alone somewhere when the time comes, but not alone. Because we have a Savior who said, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you, and I'll walk you all the way through the gates of heaven. Amen. And we'll be together forever. So uh, the hope is, this hope is not some floaty little concept. It is real, it is substantial, it is feelable, it's almost touchable, <laughs> and... While while there are triggers of grief, all you know, there's, that's going to go on the rest of my life. The fa- and and the reminders of what what you don't have and what what you could you had till uh, one moment she went to heaven and and no longer do you have that wisdom to turn to, that laughter to hear, that person to pray with, that person you can refer to something in your life and and you don't have to explain it even. They know exactly what you're talking about or who you're talking about. That's just not there anymore. Oh, that's irreplaceable. But the fact is that while that hole in your heart still remains, and Dietrich Bonhoeffer said God will leave that hole there because that's where the person you love lives in your heart. Hmm. But what what he will do is give you grace and strength to rebuild your life around that hole. So you don't, you don't deny your grief. That's a mistake a lot of people and a lot of Christians make. They deny their grief. Yeah. No, don't do that. But if you won't deny your, because if you do deny it, it will define you. But if you, if you will deal with it and face it and let Jesus come into that broken heart of yours to every corner of it, the Bible says the Lord is close to the brokenhearted. Psalm thirty four eighteen. He is close to the brokenhearted, and he saves those who are crushed. In spirit, I raised my hand and I said, that's me. I qualify. (laughs) And he said, good. I specialize in broken hearts and crushed spirits. I had one when I was here. And uh, it's just, it's, it's the Jesus difference. But I would encourage people, just please don't, at, at a point of loss, don't make the mistake of taking hurt road instead of hope road. And, and hurt road means, you stuff it, or you just go, allow yourself to go into self-pity, or you turn hard instead of soft. Your heart, let me tell you, you're not going to be the same after a major loss. No. You can't be the same man or woman. That's right. You're either going to have a harder heart or a softer heart. You're either going to be closer to God than you've ever been, or farther from God than you've ever been. Really important. Well, you can check out more in the book. It's called Hope When Your Heart is Breaking, Finding God's Presence in Your Pain by Ron Hutchcraft. And you can get more information at ronhutchcraft.com. 
JanetMefford.com. Thanks so much for being with us, Ron. And thank you for joining us on Janet Mefford Today. We will see you next time.